The Self and Its Sources, Reflections on Virginia Woolf's The Waves, by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 7. Then Kessler goes on to say, The variety of interpretations of the historical Jesus that the current quest has proposed is bewildering. What needs to be explored further is the prevailing hermeneutical paradigm. Perfection and success of the self cannot conceive of a genuinely eschatological message, except for the syndrome of reward and punishment, that miserable residue of an eschatological tradition. That is to say, the success of the self, if the success of the self, the formation and success of the self, the survival of a splendid personality, becomes the central focus in the modern world. What does the cross have to do with that? What does the cross teach us? What's going on in history? It must be that we're becoming better and better at being, you know, more and more uh, pristine, glowing selves, which, of course, we're not. If you look around, it's clearly not happening. question is, if we're going to be in procession, you know, well, I'll come to it later, but when Lewis went into the chapel and the headmaster read to him, he felt himself in a procession. Bernard wants to feel himself in a procession. All of us ultimately want to feel ourselves in a procession. We all sense somehow that something's going on here that's bigger than our lives and that our lives can only take meaning by being in the context of whatever that is. And so we try to figure out what it is. Is it evolution? I don't think so. Is it, you know... The zodiac? I mean, what is going on? We have to have some feel for what is going on. And I think Paul was right. You have to look to the cross to understand what's going on. And I'm not getting into all that today, but I have, we've talked about it in the past. Okay, I'm just now talking about this fascination with personality. In China, for somewhat different reasons, because China is... is, uh, is is an Eastern, to, at least for the time being, what we can still call an Eastern uh, cultural uh, enterprise. In China, there is now this fascination with Mao. And busts of Mao that glow in the dark are being sold like, like hotcakes in the markets. And little, uh, little clocks with the uh, uh, red guards holding Mao's quotations that the hand goes up with every tick are being sold. Mao temples are being built. Portraits uh, of Mao are being put on altars uh, all around rural China and so on. This was in an article that was in the Washington Post uh, last year. And the, the journalist says, Some of the new Maoism recalls Chinese tradition. When devastating floods hit the Yangtze Valley in 1991, farmers clutched Mao badges and photos, just as Chinese Buddhists for centuries have clutched images of Guan Yin, the goddess of mercy, to keep them safe and make them prosperous. And then the journalist says, so it's a religious phenomenon. What is this? an attempt to, to, uh, to stabilize an unstable situation using this, this, uh, this figure. It's, it's an attempt to do for China what, what Percival did for the group of people that gathered at the Hampton Court, the first reunion they had in this novel. Do you see the parallel I'm trying to show? I mean, it's kind of strange to be drawing it, but it shows that we're trying to find some stabilizing idol. And the journalist here makes an interesting comment. He says, It is natural that in an era of economic boom and its attendant dislocations, superstition should return. Mao may seem like an unlikely god, but hundreds of millions of people brought up in the communist era are not familiar with the traditional deities. Mao, the only giant within their mental experience, fills in by default. So this is the personality theory of history, the magnificent human being theory of history. Is it a, is it a revival of communists? Is it, in other words, is it political? Is it economic? What is going on? The, the political and the economic cancel each other out. If we say, oh, this is interesting, this is a political event, you could also say it's an economic event. These people are making money selling these things. They cancel each other out. If it's political, it's communist. If it's economic, it's, it's free market. They cancel each other out. It's religious, 
But really, it's fundamentally, it's anthropological. So, remember, Bernard says, I bought the, I bought the picture of Beethoven, not that I like music. So this has nothing to do with politics or economics. The journalist who writes this article says, that Mao is one of the ingredients tossed into the casserole of the market is itself a joke at the expense of socialism. To compound the joke, many of the traders who market the portraits and busts and cassettes are former inmates of Mao's labor camps. So something else is going on here. Uh, uh, this whole craze, this journalist says, is, quote, is a bit like the current craze for religious symbols in American fashion. Deng Xiaoping casting a nervous eye on Mao's songs and pictures is like a Catholic bishop confronting the nuns' robes, monks' garments, and crucifixes that are prominent in the new season styles at Neiman Marcus. Both Dung and the bishops must wonder, does any sincerity lurk beneath the sheik? And the answer is probably no, but the question is too psychological. You know, what is going on? Something's going on at an anthropological level that the people who are, who are manifesting it are, are supremely unaware of, but something important, I think, is going on. It said that the article says when the devastating floods hit the Yangtze Valley, people clutched their Mao statues the way their ancestors clutched the statues of Guan Yin. Uh, when there's social instability, when things begin to fall apart, we reach for the idol. We reach for something that will stabilize, just as the people who gathered at Hampton Court f found respite from their, from their instability by the presence of Percival. Okay, what is history about? For, for Bernard right now, history is about long ranks of magnificent human beings. It's the great personality theory of history. So, last month there was a review of a book, a biography, about uh, Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, a book written by Ralph Gregor Ruth and reviewed by Claudia Kunz. And I just want to share with you that review because it has to do with what's going on in the world. And it's a pretty grim thing, but it shows another version of the same kind of instability. So here's what the reviewer says. Mr. Ruth carefully charts the rise of a morose, self-pitying young man who called himself a poor cripple. Goebbels had a club foot. And then she says, as a penniless student and unemployed PhD, Goebbels lost his Roman Catholic faith, threw himself into love affairs, adored Nietzsche's Thus Spake Zarathustra and Dostoevsky's Possessed. Now just stop there for a second. Watch the collapse of transcendence and the and the and the instability at both the psychological and spiritual level that's hinted at just in that sentence unemployed phd lost his roman catholic faith threw himself into love affairs adored nietzsche's thus spake zarathustra and dostoevsky's possessed in late 19 24, this lethargic and misanthropic young man discovered the National Socialist Movement, which transformed him into a venomous anti-Semite and passionately loyal follower of Hitler. Remember the underground man said that the natural man can still take revenge. And those of us who can't do that, we can still feel our resentment. Well, here's what this reviewer says about uh, Goebbels. With the German army in retreat, Goebbels had Berlin painted with the slogan, Hatred our duty, revenge our virtue. Goebbels said, quote, I want to be able to hate. Oh, I can hate, and I don't want to forget how. Oh, how wonderful it is to be able to hate. Sounds like the underground man. Only this, in this case, it's not a literary figure in some bizarre novel. 
It's somebody who is causing millions of people to be killed. Now, this is the reason we need to look at this. is not because Gil is trying to, you know, show us these, all these negative things. It's because we have to ask ourselves what's going on in history. The collapse of transcendence and the, and the attendant uh, perversities of the sociodrama are not just happening in the boudoir, you know, in the parlor. They're happening in history, and they're having tremendous consequences. So anyway, but, I, but in part this is a, a, a reflection on this great personality theory of history. In 1944, towards the end, Goebbels had a meeting with Hitler in which Hitler appeared shaken and frail, but Goebbels went back home and wrote in his diary the following. Uh, that Hitler, quote, was characterized by an extraordinary goodness. He had, Goebbels said, he had, quote, never seen such inner warmth. One simply has to love him. He is the greatest historical genius of our time. This is written in late 1944. The whole German cause is collapsing. Hitler himself is shaken and frail. And Goebbels is saying, he is, his warmth is unbelievable. He's the greatest historical genius of our time. Okay, gr I'm just bringing this into play because of the great personality theory of history. Now, what happened? How did, how did he fall into a delusion that powerful? Well, the reviewer says Mr. Ruth, the man who wrote the biography, tries to explain the relationship between Goebbels and Hitler in, in terms of some fairly uninteresting diary uh, entries by by Goebbels. But she says, the reviewer says, if you really want to understand, you have to read Goebbels' autobiographical novel that he wrote in 1929 entitled Michael. And it's autobiographical, and it's about Goebbels becoming a disciple of Hitler. And, the and then she quotes a passage from this novel, and it reads like this. I was, I was captivated. A light seemed to shine somewhere above him. This is as Hitler is speaking and Goebbels is in the crowd listening. I was captivated. A light seemed to shine somewhere above him. Rays of hope, shivers of hot and cold ran through me. Revelation, revelation. I could no longer contain myself. I walked. No, I was driven toward the platform. There I stood, looking long into the face of the One, capital O. This was no speaker. This was a prophet. The blue stars of his eyes struck me like the rays of flame, a command. In this instant, I was reborn. I was behind a car the other day. This is interesting to me. I was behind a car the other day. They had about eight bumper stickers on it. Now, you don't even have to read the bumper stickers to notice. If they have eight bumper stickers, something's wrong. Okay? Already, you got a problem. It's a symptom of instability. Eight bumper stickers. But one of them, the one down in the right-hand corner, said, born-again pagan. <laughs> well, th this is born-again paganism. Right here is what we're reading about, is born-again paganism. What really comes of it. And you remember Jeremiah? So don't, let me just parallel this with Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, It's long now since you broke your yoke, burst your bond, said, I will not serve. Yet on every high hill and under every spreading tree you have lain down like a harlot. And this story about Goebbels says, as an unemployed PhD, Goebbels, as an unemployed PhD, Goebbels lost his Roman Catholic faith, threw himself into love affairs, adored Nietzsche's "Thus Spake Zarathustra," and Dostoevsky's "Possessed," and uh, and then this happened to him at a Hitler rally. Okay. Now this there's a this is little bit apocalyptic, obviously. The reviewer says, Goebbels' faith collapsed finally only after Hitler committed suicide. On April 30th, 1945, Goebbels' wife, Magda, poisoned their children, Helga, Hilda, Helmut, Hulda, Hedda, and Heidi. Then the couple took cyanide. Pick up your cross and follow me. You see, it's unbelievable, really. We're talking about religion. This is a religious problem. It's a religious problem. 
It's a cult masquerading as politics. It's religious cultism masquerading as politics or economics or something else. Apropos of that, I think, is something, again, a, a dialogue that happened in the New York Review of Books. Last May, there was an, a piece in there by Václav Havel in which he said, among other things, quote, For long decades, the chief nightmare of the democratic world was communism. Today, three years after it began to collapse like an avalanche, it would seem as though another nightmare has replaced it, post-communism. And then last month, this last issue, uh, Joseph Brodsky replied to that with the following, and I think it's just full of import and insight. He said, The magnitude of what took place in our parts of... It was in a letter to Václav Havel, so it's a personal letter. He says, The magnitude of what took place in our parts of the world and over two-thirds of a century cannot be reduced to, quote, communism. Catchwords, on the whole, lose more than they retain. And in the case of tens of millions killed and the lives of entire nations subverted, a catchword simply won't do. What you call communism was the breakdown of humanity and not a political problem at all. It was a human problem, a problem of our species, and thus of a lingering nature. Neither as a writer nor moreover as a leader of a nation should you use terminology that obscures the reality of human evil, terminology, I should add, invented by evil to obscure its own reality. Why don't we simply start by admitting that an extraordinary anthropological backslide has taken place in our century, regardless of who or what triggered it? Now, that's, that's really one of those marvelous, sweeping away, clarifying statements, I think. What are we talking about? So, in the novel, Bernard suddenly has this, he thinks he's get, finally getting out of it, he thinks he finally discovered himself, and then he has this great personality theory of history, and the Chinese are now creating icons to Mao, and Goebbels' uh, example of idolizing Hitler and falling into that cultic thing, and, uh, and finally Brodsky's seeing that you can't, none of those things can be explained economically or politically or even psychologically. That's the next thing, is to try to explain them psychologically. I don't think they can be explained psychologically. There's a psychological component just as there's a, a political and an economic component. But fundamentally, there's something anthropological going on. It's religious. It's a religious problem. But anthropology is the place to try to understand it. Well, we have a hunger for seeing our lives in the context of something greater than our own lives. Bernard, observing that people like Lewis can feel themselves in that procession, says, I, who am always distracted, at once make up a story and so obliterate the angles of the crucifix. I, I want to wrap up, but I want to make a point of Bernard going in and buying a picture of Beethoven in a silver frame. It's perfect. It's, it's a perfect example of, of, um, of what Jeremiah was talking about. In Ash Wednesday, Eliot says, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. But Eliot and East Coker, written later, says, there is no, uh, there's only the flight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again, and now under conditions that seem unpropitious. And what makes them unpropitious is that we find it so difficult to stay committed to one faith to one image. Now, Bernard is a classic example of that. He's a study of the modern problem. He buys a picture of Beethoven in a silver frame, and instantly, here's what happens. He says, and then we also find out why he bought, a, why he bought Beethoven, even though he doesn't care anything about music. 
He says, faces recur, faces and faces, Neville, Susan, Lewis, Jenny, Rhoda, and a thousand faces. How impossible to order them rightly, to detach one separately, and to give the effect of the whole. Again, like music, he says, what a symphony with its concord and its discord, its tunes on top and its complicated bass beneath, then grew up. Each played his own tune, fiddle, flute, trumpet, drum, or whatever the instrument might be. This is a little complicated, but what's at, what, what this means is that the Beethoven represents something. Beethoven, he hopes to focus on that face while all these other faces are... He, he's hounded by all these other faces. You know, Sebastian Moore said, sin is seeing my life through other people's eyes. And all these other faces are there. Uh, in, the, in the biblical tradition, one says, one walks in the sight of the Lord. To be free is to walk in the sight of the Lord. To be in sin is to see my life through other people's eyes. So Bernard takes this picture of Beethoven, but all of a sudden, all these other faces are there, having their effects on him. But why Beethoven? because he now has this hope that out of all of that cacophony, he can create a symphony, that he needn't choose one, that he needn't, uh, that it's not a matter of focusing his devotion, that somehow out of that uh, cacophony, a symphony could be made. And I think he also chooses Beethoven because Beethoven was a hysteric. Beethoven was, was, a, was a madman who produced great music out of his madness. And I think he represents for Bernard precisely that hope. He's somehow that all of this craziness will result in magnificence. Remember the magnificent personality theory of history. That if I'm this crazy, I'm potentially a Beethoven. If I'm this scattered and hysterical, I'm potentially a Beethoven. So I want to close by reading two things, one from a great mystic and one about a great mystic. Eckhart says, a person must do one thing. He cannot do everything. For if he tried to do everything, now this, now that, forsaking his own way to take another, which for the moment pleased him better, he would soon become quite unstable. Let a person choose one good way for himself and stick to it always and coordinate other ways with his own, observing only that they are all God's ways. Let him not begin one today and take up another tomorrow. One should not worry that he is missing something this way, for with God one will not miss anything. It's important, I think, here to point out that the, that the transcendence is an explicit part of what Eckhart is talking about. So, I want to, so then, finally, Elaine Cugno, who's a commentator on St. John the Cross, says something really quite extraordinary. He says, In fact, we know well the complex relationship existing between one person and the absence of another. We live all the time with the presence deep within us of people who are not us, who never will be us, although our activity reaches out to them. This relationship is called desire. In fact, we could summarize everything we have said in one sentence. The soul, as John of the Cross sees it, is defined by its capacity to desire God. Obviously, it remains for us to say what we mean by desire and in what sense God can be called desirable, for this word covers a multitude of meanings. One could do worse than to ponder with John of the Cross this well-known and traditional proposition, though slightly reworded. Namely, God gives himself to us truly, but without ever changing faith into knowledge or hope into fulfillment. Faith will pass away, hope will pass away, but charity, which is glorified desire and the very truth of desire, shall not pass away. And I'm particularly struck by that line. God gives himself to us truly without ever changing faith into knowledge. 
think that's incredible. The overall theme for our <clears throat> current explorations is gravity and grace, a, uh, a juxtaposition that I got, of course, from Simone Weil. And so I want to uh, begin with a little reflection on gravity and grace because I think uh, there is a contest going on towards the end of this novel and arguably towards the end of all novels, a contest between gravity and grace more or less in the terms in which Simone Weil uh, wrote of those uh, two juxtaposing realities. And to give a feel for that, I would quote something that Rhoda, one of the characters in the novel, says towards the end of the novel. She says, none had the courage to be one thing rather than another. Uh, and I want to juxtapose that. That, that I, I'm gonna, I would propose to you, that is, that's the law of gravity. The law of gravity in its centrifugal manifestation. That is to say, everything is falling apart, coming apart, and the, it, it gets to a point, this centrifugal spinning out of everything, the dissolving of structures and uh, the collapse of institutions, of social arrangements, gets to a certain point where it begins to have noticeable psychological effects. That is to say, the integrity of the self itself begins to be called into question. Uh, and so Rhoda says, none had the courage to be one thing rather than another. I want to come back to that in a second. But I would juxtapose, if that's gravity, grace is what Kierkegaard was talking about when he said purity of heart is to will one thing. And so I would juxtapose those two. None had the courage to be one thing rather than another, and purity of heart is to will one thing. And I'll come back to both later on. But of course, when Rhoda says none had the courage to be one thing rather than another, it's not a question of courage, but of psychological instability. The inability to be in the presence of fascinating mimetic stimuli without succumbing to their influence. And that's why the characters in this novel were unable to become one thing rather than another. They were always in the presence of something fascinating, which was other than the thing they were becoming at the moment, and they immediately went into the business of trying to become it. And so this inability to resist the mimetic uh, stimuli, I think, is, is at the heart of 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 this novel and in many ways of the modern psychological predicament. But I would like to speak of this gravity. See, for Simone Weil, gravity is what Paul called sin. Uh, it, is, it is a world in which one is pulled and pushed by forces that one may not be able to see or comprehend uh, but uh, one f ultimately becomes enslaved to them. And I would break it down into two versions because there are different forms of gravity. One is, as I said a minute ago, s the centrifugal one, where everything is spinning out, moving out, dissolving. All structures are dissolving. All boundaries are dissolving. All, uh, all uh, uh, coherence is dissolving. And then there is the centripetal force of gravity, and that's when all of that, uh, all of those now dissolved fragments and atoms of, uh, of existence or structure collapse into the black hole of a sacrificial vortex, such as are generated by tribal, racial, nationalistic, ethnic enclaves as they gather themselves together for the business of expelling or destroying their scapegoats. So here are the two forms of gravity. One is more psychological, it's not necessarily more psychological. It's just as sociological. It's the, it's, the, it's the disillusionment of all structures, social as well as psychological. And the other is the, is the drawing together in a powerful vortex of all of that uh, into some sacrificial focus. And, of course, these are obviously related, and Girard does a masterful job of relating them in his theory of the, of the uh, crisis of distinctions which it would, would correspond to what I'm calling this, the centrifugal force of gravity, and then the sacrificial uh, resolution of the crisis, which would be the centripetal one, where, where everything is called back together again. So 
this novel is primarily concerned about the former. It's primarily concerned about the, the dissolving of distinctions, obviously, at, and at the psychological level. It's not primarily concerned about the do- dissolving of distinctions at the social or institutional level, but at the psychological level. And it, and it has very little uh, to say about the force of gravity, the centripetal force of gravity. But it has just enough to say that, that it's worth noting. In other words, you know the yin-yang symbol where you have the white part that has a little dot of the black in it and the black with a little dot of the white. Well, it's, this novel is like that. It's primarily concerned about the psychological uh, and I would say the centrifugal force of gravity, the, the dissolving force of gravity. But it has just a hint of the alternative, which is the alternative still within the gravitational system or what Paul would call the, the, the world of sin. But in, in this instance, it's the centripetal force, the sacrificial force of gravity. And I wanted, before we get into the, uh, the novel's primary concern, which is with the psychological disintegration, I wanted to point out those places in the novel where you get that hint of a possibility of a sacrificial or centripetal gravitational field. And it's relevant to the novel be- because to the degree that we experience this disintegration of, of social and psychological structures, we become not only uh, available to be caught up in these, in these uh, social vortices. We're like, you know, Jung says the modern, so, so many moderns are like the, uh, the shuttlecock that's caught in every wind that blows. Uh, we become, we, we, to the extent that we, uh, that we experience this dissolution, we, we are without ballast, without grounding. So it's easy for us to get caught up in some whirlwind, a social whirlwind. So to the degree that the dissolving is taking place, we're prone to this. But also to the degree that we are experiencing this, this dissolution psychologically ourselves, we, we develop a certain, a certain itch for a return to something that will galvanize us all and bring us together. So there's a, inside us as well as socially, there is this predilection for a sacrificial resolution. And that's why, that's the way it has always happened. That's why when structures break down, uh, when you get, uh, you know, the post-World War I Germany, you create a situation that is ripe for national socialism and all its sacrificial madness. Uh, you see, that's not, that's not a historical anomaly. It's not a, even a psychological or social anomaly. It's absolutely according to the pattern uh, that, that has been in place since the beginning of the world, since the foundation of the world. So, it's of interest, then, to take a look at the little passages in this text which speak of that. Last week, was it, or week before last, I quoted that passage in which Bernard manages to live for a few nanoseconds without a model. He finally discovers who he is. He says, finally, I'm me. I, 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 Bernard, Bernard. He said, I even said my name a couple of times. I suddenly discovered myself. I'm not Lewis. I'm not Rhoda. I'm not Neville. I'm Bernard. I'm not Percival. I'm Bernard. And the next sentence, he, he goes uh, uh, into a shop and buys, not because he loves music, a picture of Beethoven in a silver frame. And instantly finds another model. But this model represents something for him. And he says, not that I love music, but because the whole of life, its masters, its adventurers, then appeared in long ranks of magnificent human beings behind me. And I was the inheritor, I the continuer, I, the person miraculously appointed to carry it on. Now, this idea of being in some grand procession and having the burden of carrying on this grand procession uh, has, has uh, at the philosophical level, Nietzschean overtones, and it, is, it, and it leads towards a kind of social or nationalistic uh, messianic uh, complex. It's not in Bernard, you know, because it's just part of a passing whim like everything else in his life. But it's, it indicates that he's now longing for, to be 
to be in something, to be in procession, to be caught up in something bigger than he is. There's an interesting... I love the poet uh, William Stafford, by the way, but he has a little poem in which he says the following, which, which I both agree with and disagree with. He says, I want to be as afraid as the teeth are big. I want to be as dumb as the wise are strong. I'd just as soon be pushed by events to where I belong. This is the, this is the feeling that one gets after one reaches the Hamlet stage of existence. You see, this is the feeling one gets when suddenly one realizes one's no longer caught up in something, no longer part of some great thing. And then there's this feeling of wanting to be caught up in it again and not wanting to be so cerebral. You know, Hamlet says, our conscience doth make cowards of us all. It's not true. That's Shakespeare being ironical. But the point is that Stafford uh, is itching here to be caught up. Now, it's perfectly true when he says, I'd, I'd just as soon be pushed by events to where I belong, that's, there's some, something very valid about that. Uh, life goes on and we're not in charge of it. But if the events that one wants to be uh, pushed by are social events of a sacrificial nature, then it's best not to be pushed by them. And if one is itching for to be, to be gathered up into some, in some cause then one has to be careful in our world because there are plenty of instances where that cause people are being gathered up in it and turned into murder. And the more so, the degree to which they have, they have experienced psychological or social dissolution. Okay, well, back to Bernard. Bernard says much earlier in the novel, back when he was in college, you know, Bernard and Neville and Lewis were never part of the, uh, of the athletic crowd that Percival was part of, you know, and they used to sit in their dorm room and look out and watch Percival and all of the, all of the uh, Percival wannabes following him over the hill to play, to play football or something, and they sort of envied this marvelous trooping of the guys. Uh, and that's just another version of this same thing, being a little bit like Hamlet out of it, looking at it and thinking, oh, I'd like to be Fortune Bros. I'm just, this is stream of consciousness. I have some, I guess I'm going to talk about stream of consciousness later, but, you know, when Hamlet meets Fortinbras in the, in the field, he's just totally amazed by this guy who has no second thoughts. He, he's, he's willing to throw it all away for, uh, for the, an eggshell. You know, the, what is that line? The, the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. <laughs> I mean, he's amazed by this guy Fortinbras. And Hamlet can't feel that. He's beyond it. Well, Bernard is that way, and Lewis and Neville are that way in this novel. But they look out and they see this, this simple-minded Percival and all his uh, and all his clones uh, running off, and they kind of envy them. So Bernard says, "There again comes the oh this." The, so at one point in the novel, they've gone off, they play, and they come back, and he sees them coming back, and he says, "There again comes the rollicking chorus. They are now smashing China. That is the convention." By the way, this reference to smashing China has to be understood. Virginia Woolf is a poet, and so when she uses these terms, she's using them symbolically for a lot of things. And smashing China doesn't mean just breaking up the, the, uh, the, the dinnerware. It means something else on a historical scale. And it doesn't just mean China, but it, you, see, you see what I'm saying? The, see, see the kind of echo structure she's creating here? Here they come, the rollicking chorus. What are they doing? Smashing China. Watch out. Watch out. Okay, here, there they are now, smashing China. That is the convention. The chorus, like a torrent, jumping rocks, brutally assaulting old trees, pours with splendid abandonment headlong over precipices. On they roll, on they gallop, after hounds, after footballs. They pump up and down, attached to oars like sacks of flour. All divisions are merged. They act like one man. Now again they are smashing the China. That is the convention. That's, pretty, that's a pretty amazing insight into things. If we see it anthropologically. Okay, so then we connect that later on to something that happens towards the end of the book. After Bernard has experienced more and more of, this, of the disintegration of his own psychological reality, uh, and he has even more of an impulse to uh, to return to some kind of gathered uh, 
social uh, experience. So he says, The sound of the chorus came across the water, and I felt leap up that old impulse, and we would say, old indeed, since the foundation of the world. This is the old impulse. This is the impulse that that drives what Paul calls the old anthropos. He said, I felt that old impulse leap up, which has moved me all my life, the impulse to be thrown up and down on the roar of other people's voices, singing the same song, to be tossed up and down on the roar of almost senseless merriment, sentiment, triumph, and desire. So that's what he he's, he finds at this moment. This is towards the end of the novel when he's when he's experienced a lot of psychological disintegration. He's feeling this itch to return to the chorus. And uh, one should not, in the world as destabilized as ours is, and as that is suffering from as much social and psychological disintegration as ours is, one must not, and we have enough historical data, you know. Virginia Woolf was writing this before the rise of Hitler. And we've had Hitler and a lot of other people in the meantime feeding off of this same phenomenon. And in the world we now live in, it's, we, we should uh, take, uh, take note. Anyway, but Bernard says, but not now. No, he's like Hamlet. See? No, I could not collect myself. I could not distinguish myself. I could not recover myself from dissipation. Was this then, this streaming away mixed with Susan, Jenny, Neville, Rhoda, and Lewis, a sort of death? He couldn't do it. Okay. That I, so I just mentioned that as the centripetal force of gravity, which is always a, a uh, temptation in a world that's, that's being dissolved by the centrifugal force of gravity. And, I, and we should not take the fact that, that Bernard was, did not immediately go out and join the brown shirts. We should not take that as an indication that we're out of the woods. It may be that if he undergoes uh, another generation of psychological disintegration, he's, he'll be ready to sign up. You see what I mean? This is always the danger in the world of gravity. So I'll go back to this. Bernard saying, is this then a sort of death? And I think what we have to see in the last part of this novel is the novel's difficulty and the novelist's difficulty with the business of ending the novel. How do you end this novel? And the novel begins to ask the question. The novel begins to be an analysis of, the, of itself and an analysis of all novels. And that's why after it was written and some critics said this is the end of the novel, uh, there's something to be said for their opinion. I have this storybook. Have I told you this before? I have this storybook at home that I used to read to my kids when they were younger, which shows a, a, a adolescent boy whose his father very ceremoniously gives him this golden box and tells him to go on this great long journey. And when he comes back from that journey, he'll open the box and he'll realize that he'll, he'll, he'll then have this tremendous treasure, but he can't open it until journey. Well, he goes on this arduous journey, lonely and arduous journey. He comes back and he opens the box. And in the box, when, when the father had given him the box, they were in this room and his brothers were there and the father was handing him the box. And when he opens the box after the journey, he looks in and he sees the room with the brothers there and the father handing him the box. And so he's seeing, well, you see, it's the fairy tale, but it's a nice one. And so this novel is a little like that. It gets to the end and it opens the top of its box and looks back in at itself trying to be novelistic and trying to now at, now come to the conclusion of the novel. So now how do you end the novel by writing a novel about the end of a novel? You know, I mean, it's very, it's, it's fascinating and convoluted. And I think it's fascinating and convoluted precisely because Virginia Woolf knew what she was doing more than we realize. And she couldn't quite bring this novel to a conclusion. When, when There's a hint of it here when Bernard says, uh, is this streaming away mixed with all these other characters a sort of death? A little bit before that, he had said, should this be the end of the story? 
a kind of sigh, a last ripple of the wave. It's called the waves. Is it just going to sort of peter out? Petering out is a phrase that he uses often. Is it just going to peter out? Or is there some, can we conclude this novel? He says, if there are no more stories, what end can there be or what beginning? I think Virginia Woolf sensed that the genre that she was writing in was itself in a terminal state. So the question about the inability to end the story or the novel and the collapse of storytelling, remember Bernard said earlier, I've been telling stories all my life. I've told thousands of them. I've been collecting phrases to put in all the stories. I've never found the one true story to which all the phrases refer. And lacking that, all the stories begin to ring hollow and uh, come to nothing. See, what is the one true story to which all the phrases refer? Now, when Bernard said, Bernard is Virginia Woolf in this novel, I don't think there's any doubt about it. And when he says, what is the one true story to which all the phrases refer, what phrases is he talking about? He's talking about the phrases in this novel. So is there a story to which all the phrases in this novel refer? If there's a story to which all the, the important phrases in this novel refer, need it necessarily have been the story that Virginia Woolf wanted to tell? Maybe not. But what I want to show is that there is a story to which the phrases in this story refer, and it's, and it's only... But it's only the lack of that story that makes it impossible to, to end this novel. The novel can't, she can't end the novel because uh, she can't openly acknowledge the existence of the story to which all the phrases refer. So I want to, I want to follow that a little bit. First of all, back to Bernard's psychological disintegration. And another little echo structure. There's so many echo structures in this novel that it's impossible at the end to tell a chronological story because it's like the finale at the fireworks on the 4th of July. Everything's going off at once and everything is echoing stuff all back through the novel. So, it's, so it, I have to go back and forth. But here's something towards the end of the novel. Bernard says, and again this is a symptom of this synth uh, centrifugal force of gravity. He says, we are slipping away. Little bits of ourselves are crumbling. I cannot keep myself together. And what is odd is that I still clasp the return half of my ticket to Waterloo firmly between the fingers of my right hand, even now, even sleeping. This hope, you see, that he can be pulled back from this from this uh, dissolving that's going on in his life. Earlier, in that passage, which corresponds to this slipping away, little bits of ourselves crumbling, Bernard said, I changed and changed, was Hamlet, was Shelley, was the hero whose name I now forget of a novel by Dostoevsky, was for a whole term incredibly Napoleon. So here you have an echo structure of the guy who's dissolving in that way, holding on to his ticket to, to Waterloo, hoping that somehow this thing can be brought to an end. It can only be brought to an end by def a, a Waterloo-like defeat. You see, it can only be brought to an end by having the whole thing fall out from under him. And there's a sense in which he knows that, or the novel knows that. Okay, so let's look at how he tries to stabilize his life as the novel slips towards its conclusion slash inconclusion. Last week, I, I, or two weeks ago, whenever it was, I pointed out that Bernard, like all the rest of the characters in this novel, uh, tapped, methodically tapped the snail shell of his, of his own self until it cracked and something slimy oozed out. And the next phrase, as soon something slimy moved out, parentheses, he got engaged. In other words, as soon as he realized, the shock of realizing that his life was, was, was sort of oozing out, 
the shock drove him immediately to the only sacrament on the historical horizon in our day. The one we overuse, you know, because we don't have anything else. Every time we need a sacrament, we run to it. And so he, he, he grabbed at marriage, hoping that it would stabilize, you know, and that he could... And he says, uh, this is what he expected would come of marriage. He said, I want to, quote, unclasp my hands, let fall my possessions, and merely stand here in the street, taking no part, watching the omnibuses without desire, without envy. He hoped that marriage would, uh, would, would relieve him of this life of desire and envy, which is what it had consisted of. By the way, I feel like I ought to say this at some point, and I don't know when, except maybe this is a good time. As you know, I don't wear my ecumenism on my sleeve, but I feel this question of desire. I feel if, if we are to engage in really important and productive uh, ecumenism, we will need to begin with desire. That if we begin with desire and approach it anthropologically, we can, we can make important strides in ecumenism, that the world religions uh, can become to a considerable degree intelligible to each other if we start anthropologically with desire as opposed to starting theologically with doctrine and so on and so forth. I think all of those things are important. I'm not putting theology or doctrine down. I think they're extremely important. But in terms of ecumenism, I think we should start anthropologically with desire and we get a lot further along. So here's Bernard. He runs to, to marriage hoping that that will relieve him of desire and envy, which of course it does not. And then he tries to, to extend that a little bit by, by living the most conventional life. He thinks maybe just conventional middle-class life will do it. So he says... Clapping my hat on my head, I strode into the world inhabited by vast numbers of men who had also clapped their hats on their heads. And as we jostled and encountered in trains and tubes, we exchanged the knowing wink of competitors and comrades. Competitors and comrades. It really is another version of that thing that I, I read to you a couple of weeks ago from, from when Jenny was preparing for the social event. You know, Jenny is the social... Uh, flit and she gets ready for these social events and she as she's getting ready she says I am ready now to join men and women on the stairs and even the metaphor of the stairs is interesting my peers she says I pass them exposed to their gaze as they are to mine like lightning we look but do not soften or show signs of recognition it's the same thing Bernard's talking about passing these people in trains his competitors and comrades. Well, that's the world. He thinks, well, if I'll just engage that world, somehow my life will structure itself. And it does to a certain extent. He says, at, during this part of his life, he says, life is pleasant, life is good, the mere process of life is satisfactory. Take the ordinary man in good health. He likes eating and sleeping. He likes the snuff of fresh air and walking at a brisk pace down the strand. Or in the country, there's the cock crowing on the gate. There's the fool galloping around the field. Something always has to be done next. Tuesday follows Monday, Wednesday, Tuesday. Everything, you know, it's fine. And if you think it's fine at this point, you have to be called back to a little thing. Virginia Woolf doesn't. She's, like, she's a writer. She doesn't write words carelessly. In the middle of that, that's a broad brush stroke of this experience. But in the middle of it, what is there? A cock crowing on a gate. Now, in the Western world, you simply don't talk about a cock crowing on a gate with no uh, symbolic ramifications. But it's absolutely in passing. He simply notices that there's a cock crowing. He doesn't notice. It's just one of the th many things that are out there. It's like the foal galloping the field. And so if we're reading it and we say, oh, there's a cock crowing, the cro cock crowing on the gate, couldn't be important because there's also a foal galloping the field. And the full galloping field sets off no symbolic resonance. Therefore, the cock crowing on the gate must not have meant anything. That's absolutely silly. We've fallen for the little trap she set for us. You see? Exactly that, to hide it inside a text that's, that's uh, multifaceted. Because then next, right after that, 
Bernard says this was a perfectly okay life, but into this crashed death. Percival's death. So I went out and I saw the first morning he would never see. So suddenly into all of this comes death. And we have to remember now that Percival is the one to whom they all looked, the one who represented real life. And in a structural sense, we would say then, Percival is the Lord in this novel. Not in a religious sense, but in a structural sense, psychological sense. And he died. I think we're invited to see the parallel between this and the, and, uh, the Christian story. And I'll try to show that as we go along. Now, whether, to, to what degree Virginia Woolf contrived to have that be so, I can't say. But I think the evidence is overwhelming that it is so in this novel. And I can't explain it because she was an agnostic and had a kind of antipathy for this. But I think she had a, a curiosity about it linked very strongly to the fact that T.S. Eliot, her friend, at the time she was writing this novel, was undergoing a conversion. And she couldn't believe it. None of the people in the Bloomsbury group could believe it. They were scandalized by it. But nevertheless, it left its mark and had its effect on her. And so there's, there's a structure. The other explanation for this is that the underlying structure of crisis, death, and rebirth is so much a part of the, the West literary and uh, spiritual and psychological and uh, cultural tradition that we simply do not know how to think otherwise and that it comes up no matter what we do, no matter what our opinion is. And so Percival dies. And this obviously is the breach, the gap, the shock. What's Bernard going to make of this, if anything? You know, the right after the the death of Jesus on the cross, the, the, the two uh, disciples on the way to Emmaus, they have their heads downcast, you know. We thought he was going to uh, be the one to save Israel and so on. But they're in that state of suspended animation when, after the shock. I find myself thinking about the last of this novel in terms of the paraclete. And... In John's Gospel, you know, Jesus says, unless I go, the paraclete cannot come to you. Now, we can try to, we can understand that. We can understand that theologically. We can understand it in lots of different ways. But I think we can also understand it in a kind of psychological way. And that is that this shock uh, has a role to play in the in the, the conversion, in conversion. So in any way, it, 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 even if these stories are just parallel, they're at the same stage right here. The death of the primary one has occurred. The shock has happened. Uh, and then we have to see, will it come to something? So now we're, we're at a place where the novel could begin to come to an end. It could drift toward a conclusion that's intelligible to us. Because the major character, all the other characters have dropped out, and that is only Bernard, so we only have Bernard to look at. And we say, will he make it? And what does that mean? And if so, why? And if not, why not? So it says, I saw the first morning he would never see. To see things without attachment from outside and to realize their beauty in itself, how strange. A sense that a burden has been removed. Pretense and make-believe and unreality are gone. So this, this happens because Percival has died. Suddenly, like the, a shock like that, clears everything away. All of the things we thought were important go away and we're, we're alive. And Bernard says, in order to hold on to it, I ignored newspaper placards and went and looked at pictures. He doesn't want words. He doesn't, well, this is again Virginia Woolf, you know, does, doesn't want the words to come in. But what pictures did he look at? Remember before he got the, a, 
a picture of Beethoven in a silver frame, and now he, he goes and he looks at pictures randomly. Any picture, just so long as it's not words, just so long as it doesn't have a caption. <laughs> Any picture without words will do. So he says uh, he saw Madonnas and pillars, arches and orange trees, still as on the first day of creation, but acquainted with grief. So it's a moment of real rebirth. It's a moment of a real breakthrough. It's the second creation of the world. It's on the first day of creation, but acquainted with grief. It's absolutely the, the moment. And the question is, will it work? 